were in Luke was a little while ago because we, we had a bit of a break from it. And now as we continue in our study of Luke, we had just looked at Jesus talking about the blessings and woes that come when all values are flipped upside down in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus now begins to advocate is nothing less than a revolution of values. A, or as Martin Luther King called it, a radical revolution of values. And what, what was up is down, what was blessed is now a woe, what was a woe is now blessed. And at the heart of it, interestingly, Jesus says, back in giving the blessings and woes, but blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. That's how the ancestors treated the prophets. That's how we get treated when we're really living as Christ does from time to time. We'll get treated that way, if indeed we are living a godly life. Because what does Paul promise Timothy? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Exactly. So, up in that section, Jesus talks about how you will be treated. But he doesn't actually expand on how it is you are to treat those that persecute you. That's what's coming now in this next section. So let's begin to read in verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, and, and a lot of people think as the way that Jesus says this, he's now kind of zeroing in, not just on the general crowds, but all right, if you're really going to be a Christian, really going to be my follower, you're really in this, and you, 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 you've bent your ear towards this, you're not thinking about something else, you're not looking out the window right now, you're actually listening even at that moment. Hey, they're not doing too bad as I looked over there. I will be watching every other minute here just to see if, if you're listening. And I'll let you know afterwards about you know, how that was going. For those of you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. I don't know if this is providence or what, but as this came in our normal preaching schedule, it falls on Memorial Day. And I thought it was rather brilliant, even the way that the, the, the St. Hills and even Steve and sharing were, were able to recognize, well, isn't it amazing that we have the, the Christ-like example of those who would lay down their lives for others, but at the same time, let's not lose sight of the fullness of a Christ-like example. And that as he regards enemies, it's with love. And listen to how he expands on this. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, well, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything 
back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. This is radical, over-the-top, laying out a completely new way of making sense of the world through Jesus Christ right here. And, and for me, this is really difficult in what Jesus is asking. He's asking for you to love your enemy. Now, who is your enemy? This is something we got to clear up even before we get into this. We've done family devos on this passage many times in our family. Perhaps you've done it as well. And when we press our kids to tell us who their enemy is, unfortunately, it's usually their sibling or me. Now, now I think we've got to get a perspective on all of this. Even as you're thinking now, and hopefully we're kind of the gears are grinding of application with this passage, but even now as you're thinking about who your enemy might be, and if it's somebody even in fellowship here who had to come and say, do you mind if I talk to you about something and it was a reproof to perhaps try to intercede in something that's going on in your life, but you didn't like the way that they said it, or maybe they weren't the most socially savvy person and it came across in a way that was a bit abrasive, that person, newsflash, is not your enemy. This is not an issue here of, oh my goodness, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be the bigger person and I am going to love that person even though they are such an evil enemy in my life. No, if you do that, then you're going to add a whole heap of pride onto whatever else they were trying to talk to you about at the moment. This is not about that. Someone who generally wants to see the cause of Christ and righteousness really brought forth even in our own lives, it ain't about that. This is surely about those who are trying to oppose the gospel, about those that are a, a opposition in your life to being able to do the truly righteous things that, that God wants to see done throughout the world here. And, but now, as we, as we wrestle with this, then here's my temptation. Maybe it's yours too. You know what? You're right. Jesus does say, love your enemy. So this is how I'm going to love them. I'm going to bring stern discipline upon them. This is how I'm going to love them. I'm going to pray that they can radically repent. That's how I'll express my love to my enemy. Well, here's the hard part. As we've been studying in our midweeks, there's a little something called parallelism that's going on here, where one phrase is repeated and the next phrase happens to define the other phrase. So Jesus says here, love your enemy. And then how does he give a parallel to that? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now this, this idea of love, and there's a, a variety of words for love in the language in which the Bible is written, which is Greek. And the, the different words that you have is this one word, which is storge love. Storge love is something that I experienced just a moment ago watching Felix change the diaper of his cute little girl outside. The whole time, as he's changing a stinky diaper, he is beaming with the love of a proud father. He could not have been happier 
having that, there he is, right there, and look at that cute girl. Dry, not crying, dry diaper, life is good, right? But what Jesus is asking for is not for you to suddenly conjure up an affection for your enemy like, like that, uh, nor is it the issue of eros, one of the other Greek words. Uh, and eros is this idea of a romantic love. Matter of fact, the, the Greek god eros, when he was depicted in Roman mythology, is called Cupid. And it's not that idea of a romantic love. Because when you have a romantic love, especially when it's new and exciting, you have superhuman abilities <laughs> that sadly may not exist right now. And wives are keenly aware that you had superhuman abilities at one point in time while you were courting them. And those superhuman abilities allowed you to have great personal hygiene, allowed you to be thoughtful, to know where every florist was on the way, to, to actually have bought a card for them not on the way to the event where you're going to meet them. But to have bought it days earlier, thought about it, written out, had Bible scriptures in there. It, it's, it's not that word for love either. And all that goes into to, to romantic love. Nor is it phileo, which we get this, you know, Philadelphia. And that's about, you know, you're, you're just buds. You're, you're chum. You just have a natural effect. You have a lot in common. What you do together, you click. It's a lot of fun. You say the same old movie lines together. You think stupid things are funny. That, that's, that's just kind of the phileo, natural affection that you just kind of click together rather well. But it's none of those three. Rather, it is agape. Agape, the great Christian love that Jesus is talking about here. And agape is not forged out of your affections, but it is forged out of your will. It is a decision that he's calling you to here. And agape love is always characterized by selfless, active service that is often absurd because it doesn't make normal sense. And it is always active. It is what you do. It is how you serve. It is how, as Jesus says here, you do good for someone. Love your enemy doesn't mean, all right, I'm going to think nice thoughts about my enemy. No, it is actively doing something about it. Or as, as, as Proverbs 25 says, and uh, the, the St. Hills Mike quoted it over in Romans 12, if your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do good as you have opportunity to be able to do good even on your enemy. And here, it's very difficult. I mean, think about situations where you might even have a small little taste of someone in opposition to you. Oh, let's just say you're driving down Interstate 64. <laughs> and there's a lot of traffic as you're getting to the bridge. And you've been a good driver. You've been courteous. But here comes that guy up the right shoulder. And up he comes. And you start to think to yourself, don't leave a gap. Don't leave a gap. He's coming for the gap. If I have the gap, he's going to take it away from me. He's going to steal my manhood if I allow him inside this gap in front of me. I'm preaching to one person in particular right now. Stink. 
But it's a, a simple yet classic example of that, that person is for sure in opposition and an enemy in, in your mind to some degree. <laughs> and a jerk on top of it. And let's hope that he doesn't have a roof rack on top of his car as he's about to do this coming at you. But, <laughs> but here he comes. What are you going to do? Well, the thing that makes prudent sense is you close the gap. There you go. I'm on it. I'm not some doormat out here on the highway for you to take advantage of. I'm a man. Don't forget it. You get behind me. I won. Life is good. Nothing inspiring about that. Nothing unusual about that. Nothing selfless about that. Nothing serving about that. Nothing absurd about that. But that's what agape love is. And for you to just grit your teeth with all you've got and actually listen to your wife's advice of why don't you let him in. How, what, don't you know the rule? You, to actually listen to your wife's advice. Come on in, pump the brakes, wave it in. Some, I mean, this is so small, it hate, I hate that it even counts for anything, but it is in alignment with what Jesus is saying right here. And, and for us, when we're, we're called to make this call to, to love enemies, um, it, it may be hard for you to think of who your enemy is, but I, but I think it's worthwhile to try to imagine who you have a sense of that. Perhaps there's somebody in school who you really view as, as quite the jerk, or maybe in your neighborhood, or maybe it is that weird uncle in your family, or somebody at the office, at the job. Maybe somebody who's kind of like passed you over for, for an opportunity or has gone, gone past you in being able to have an opportunity where suddenly they become your opposition. And in any of these cases, well, then it becomes a great illustration for you to hang on to as you hear every one of these words from Jesus here. Because to do good to the guy that you like or the girl that you get along with well, that just makes sense. And, and you may buy them a birthday present, you may serve them, you may write them a note, you may surprise them, you may do all of those things, but Jesus says, what credit is that to you? It's not as though you're storing up treasure in heaven on that one so, to, so much so. I mean, maybe to some degree, any, any small cup of water I think Jesus appreciates, but it's not the radical reward that's coming to you when you do that to your enemy. You really do good in a way that meets their needs, not just in a way that's convenient to you, but you love them in a way that's really going to be able to, to meet their needs. Uh, and here's what's interesting is that when we do do that, it actually begins to affect our heart. Yeah. And that as you actively love someone that you once viewed not only unlovable, but unworthy of love, worthy of retribution, payback, when you love that person actively, selflessly serving, something begins to happen in those other areas of love that we actually have affections that begin to grow. 
And it's not just the will that brings us into alignment with that person, but it begins to affect our hearts. Social scientists have been looking at this phenomenon for ages. They often look at it with dogs, by the way. Uh, and they, they look at people who have awful dogs in their, in their family. And these awful... <laughs> it's a beautiful dog. <laughs> but, but if you have a dog... And I don't mean it's just a misbehaving dog, although that, that'll apply. But not, not only a misbehaving dog, but a misbehaving dog that has all kinds of like nasty diseases that's costing you money. So much so that you start to do the, um, you know, the calculation. It's like, what's your sleep number? <laughs> and, but, but, but a dog like that, and you, you know what, you decide, you know what, let's, let, let's do it, let's take care of this dog. But then it, it requires you to like, you know, not only like take care of their bandage and, and uh, uh, dress the wound every day and keep it right, even though that's a kind of a, a repulsive dog, uh, are, you, are you doing that because you love him? Well, maybe it's not. And, and, and as most of the studies have shown, that oftentimes... It's that act of loving that dog, of training that dog despite all odds, of persevering with that dog that ends up bringing you to a place where you end up loving. I mean like a storge phileo type loving affection for that dog. And the more that he costs you in different ways, the more that you invest, the more you end up loving that dog. And rather than saying, well, I do all this because I love him, in most cases, you began to love him because you began doing some of this as well. And as Jesus says in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Implying that it's not already there. Uh, and so yes, enemies, but this is one of the best ways ever to be able to break down the wall of enmity is actually doing something along the way. But who, who can you do this for? Who is in sight in your life that this could happen? I think we got to keep thinking about this because this is not just theory on Jesus' part. When we are boots on the ground, loving in this way, it is phenomenal to a world that needs to know Jesus Christ. So, did I have a first point? It was love is active, in case you were wondering. That's what I was talking about right there. Love is active. It is an action verb. It's not a sentiment. Jesus is not calling you to a feeling right now. He is calling you to a sacrificial, selfless action that in very may well be absurd in your life, but to actually do it, to do something about it. And secondly, love is not passive. Here's what I'm afraid of when I obey this. My fear is, same fear that keeps me from allowing the gap to open up, is that I'm going to become a doormat if I follow this teaching of Jesus. Aren't I going to be some sort of a wimpy weakling that somebody walks over, takes advantage of at every turn? Won't that just be enabling to those nasty folks out there if I begin to act that way? And, and who doesn't justify not obeying Jesus with that sort of line of logic. 
And I think that the part that we really don't want, though, is we don't want to be weak. We don't want to be wimpy. But now understand what Jesus is saying here. He says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, as he says in Matthew, turn to him also the left cheek. If someone takes your coat from you, give him also your shirt. And then as he says in Matthew, and if someone asks you to go one mile and carry their sack, perhaps it's a Roman issue, if he asks you to go one mile and carry his stuff, well then carry it for two miles. Here's the part that we need to understand about this. Jesus is not calling you to be a double doormat in these cases. He is calling you to make sure that this is on your terms. And your terms are selfless and absurd and serving. But it's on your terms. That if someone strikes you on the cheek, it can't be just about them and that you're just a victim. No, you rise up beyond victimhood and you say, oh, you like striking cheeks? Well, here I got another. I want to be able to give to you since this seems to be some sort of a desire on your part. But, it, but there's something else that goes on here. If you get struck on the right cheek, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, the way that somebody who, you know, in a 90% right-handed world, striking you on the right cheek requires... Cornelius, do you mind just coming up for one second? I need a visual aid here for So, if you, if you can stand, stand here, so everybody can see your right cheek. All right, so here's, here's his right cheek. And again, in a right-handed world, if I'm going to strike him on the right cheek, it requires me... If, if you're a bit sensitive, just, I'm serious, do not watch right now. And if you think any part of you will not respect me anymore as a minister or as a Christian, do not watch or listen, okay? So, what, I'm, I'm just, what, what, what you would do, though, is, is, is you'd have to backhand him, like, and, and that is actually a sign of even greater disdain and disrespect, is to, is to backhand the person. It, it actually shows that you're treating that person as more of a, an equal with you, and this is in a world with a class system, by the way. And in a class system, to, to actually strike in any way to show disregard or punishment, whatever it might be, for someone of your same class or caste, it, it would require you to do so you know, in, in, in this fashion uh, that we would have here. So what you are doing by, by standing tall and offering up your, your left cheek in this case is that you're then making that person realize you are not a doormat. This is of your own volition and that they're going to have to treat you as you deserve and to treat you, even if it means striking you, to, to, to strike you in such a way that you are not someone to be simply disregarded, and that this is on your own terms. So thank you, Cornelius. That was, a, that was fantastic. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got the coat and shirt thing coming up. <laughs> but then he also speaks of this coat and shirt. Right? If he takes your coat, take your shirt as well. Now, in a Jewish society, and I think in any society in first world, they uh, had much higher rigor for the ideas of modesty than we do today. But if someone takes you to, to court, as Jesus says in Matthew 5 in this parallel passage, and is able to win your shirt or your, or your coat, well then give him, if, if it's your coat, then give him your shirt as well. Again, it's not just that I'm a victim and you've been able to take advantage of me, Oh, you apparently need or want this from me? So you know what? 
This is not just going to be me based on being told to do this. I'm a giver by nature. I give. It's part of the way that I love. And the giving is not just going to be under compulsion. The giving is going to be volitional, my own will. And so if you're, if you're in a taking mode, I'm in a giving mode. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to give more than you ever imagined. You get take, take my coat, all right, and here's my shirt as well. But there also would be a bit of an active situation here too and that you're putting that person a bit in their place because to have your coat and then your shirt taken is to then expose you based on the apparel that would be worn at this time. And it's, and it's on that person that they're taking these things and, and thus that they're now in a mode of causing disrespect communally that you would be brought to a place of, of, of being exposed. But again, there's nothing passive, no wimpy, wimpy doormat stuff going on here, as Jesus says it. It takes more courage to be able to stand and take it and then to give even more. And likewise, if it is a soldier who asks you to go one mile, carry my luggage for a mile, and you could do it, but anybody would do that. Whether you're heathen, pagan, tax collector, sinner, or Christian. There's no difference in that. They're not looking for anybody of some sort of stripe to carry their stuff. They just want their stuff carried. But if you decide of yourself that, you know what, here I am in a serving mode. Let me really serve you. Let me not just serve you like everybody else. I'm going to serve you like a Christian to the point of inspiration. Not 1.2 miles. I'm going 2.0 miles with you. This is on my terms. And my terms, by the way, are the terms of Jesus Christ, who gave and gave and gave and didn't just give based on what others were trying to take from him. He gave because it was his own decision to be able to give. But it strikes at the heart. Are we givers by nature? Are we always looking for opportunities to be able to give and extend and serve and make a difference? If we are givers by nature, then when adversity strikes, we get to shine all the more brightly. Because it's in that moment where giving is a constant. Selflessness is a constant. The only reason that you would pull back from any of these things is to protect self. And there is no self involved in following Christ. The very first demand that he gives when we begin to follow him is to deny self take up the cross, and then follow Him. can't have any self left. If you're looking to preserve your reputation, if you're looking to preserve your boundaries, if you're looking to preserve your comforts in any way right now and are contemplating following Jesus, there's no possible way for that to happen. Because we are selfless givers to a degree that makes no sense to the world, to a degree that should astound the world, as they begin to be able to know Jesus Christ. And, and in doing so, by the way, not only are you choosing to give on your terms, you also then begin to choose what reward you really value. And if your giving is only to your buddy, you've got your reward in full. But as Jesus says here, do good to them, lend to them without expecting anything back, then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High. Where do you want your reward? Do you want your reward here where it gets gobbled up by moth and rust or vermin? 
Or do you want your reward where it will be forever? I don't think we ever really appreciate fully. And this is a good thing to, I think, contemplate every single quiet time that we have. Life is short and eternity is forever. We have a mere mist of a life, a mere breath of a life, a mere shadow of a life here in a fallen world. But in the age to come, where everything is radically amazing, we will have it forever. Where do you want the good stuff? In this small corruption of a breath? Or in the glory of forever? Where it will be yours to enjoy in a way that will make you say, thank goodness I obey Jesus. Like now that I look at the long-term perspective, now that I have a bit of a perspective in the ever after, now I get it. Oh my goodness. Thank God I didn't hold back. I think every moment that we hold back and we realize, even as we're in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, as we're living life with new bodies and having all that we can enjoy, I think we'll, we will be, even though excited about that, still thinking, mm, if only, if only I had looked at the reward the right way. Wow. How, how much more amazing even. And, and yeah, I, I know we'll, hey, just let me be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord for sure. And yes, heaven, no matter what, but there's over and over again the idea that Jesus lays out as we looked at a few weeks ago, the idea that there are variable punishments in hell and there are variable rewards in the new heaven and the new earth to, to, to be able to come. I, I know that every chance that you get to live in alignment with this is storing up for yourself all the more amazing of what is to, to be uh, coming your way. But he says one other thing here besides your reward will be great. And the last is that you will be in literally sons of the Most High. That's an interesting phrase because son of God or son of the Most High means that you will be godly. You'll be like God. That's a, an idiom, a first century idiom to say that you will be like God. You know, for, for example... Um, to, to, to say uh, Son of Godzilla, which was a movie when I was a little kid, uh, what was to say, this is something that's going to be like Godzilla. Uh, and to say that you're a son of God is to say that you are actually behaving and operating with the mindset of God as you make sense of the stuff that's happening to you. And my last point is, well, first is love is active, love is not passive, but thirdly, Love is Christian. It is Christ-like to love. You will be like Jesus when you love. You will inspire when you love. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Similar phrase over in Matthew in the, in the Beatitudes. Why, why live this way? What could be better than to be considered by God to be like Jesus? You get to be like Jesus. You get to walk in Jesus' steps. You get to align yourself with Jesus and know the thrill and enthusiasm that I actually did something that Jesus would do. Oh, that never would have happened before. But it's happening now. This is exciting. And think of the possibilities. If I begin to live my life with this sort of abandonment of self and excitement for others, and no matter who they are or how they are, I'm all in of giving, 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 what joy will befall you everywhere you turn, every step you take.
Because He is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. He is merciful to everyone. And so be merciful just as your Father is merciful. What did Jesus do when He got struck on the cheek? Did He retaliate? He did not. What did Jesus do when they ripped His cloak from Him? Did He say, give that back? He did not. And we likewise get to see the great example in Christ. And what did Jesus do with you at your worst moment when you were sinners? Well, Romans 5, 6 says this, while we were still sinners, while we were still ungrateful, while we were still unkind, while we were still evil, Christ died for us. That's not just letting you in in front of his car. He got tortured for you. That's not just saying, well, okay, when the lady at Food Lion opens up the new line and you were the next one who should have been in that line, but the four other people behind you were quicker than you because you were trying to help your kid and, and they all took you a spot in front of you. It's not just saying okay to them going to line. He died on a cross when we were evil. And to love our enemies, to do good to our enemies, ultimately is summarized in the golden rule. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. Treat others as you would like them to treat you. And to be truly Christian is actually to be quite unique in this world. Every religion tries to say, well, aren't all religions essentially the same? Well, every religion has a silver rule, which is, hey, if somebody's nasty to you, don't repay them. The Old Testament has that different times. Leviticus 19.18, uh, the passage in Romans 12 that uh, the St. Hills read is actually a quote from the Old Testament, from Proverbs 25.21. It, it is a general idea here. But when a Jewish rabbi, Hillel, one of the most famous rabbis that, that preceded Jesus, was asked if you could tell me the whole law standing on one leg. Here's what he said. What is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the whole law. Everything else is merely commentary. Philo was a famous uh, Jewish rabbi in, in Alexandria. And he wrote, What you hate to suffer, do not do to anyone else. One of the more famous Greek orators, whose name was uh, Isocrates, said, What things make you angry when you suffer them at the hands of others, do not do to other people. Confucius said, is there one word which may set as a rule a practice for all one's life? Is it not reciprocity, such a word? What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. There's also older Babylonian wisdom literature that, that says, do not return evil to the man who disputes with you but repay with kindness your evildoer. That's the closest we have to a kind of a positive do rather than just simply a not do. Most of the great reciprocity, treat people well, are regarding their negative behavior to you to not bring back to them in a negative way. But Jesus is the one that not only says to do so, but expects it and exemplifies it and then we see it, even among his own followers, in his own sacred texts. 
that it actually is the case. We're not dealing with hypotheticals here. We're dealing with the practicals of how Christianity happens, boots on the ground, not, not where the rubber meets the sky, but where the rubber meets the road. This is Christianity, is that we really do love one another. That's what makes it so amazing. But sadly, it also is what makes it difficult. And it is often what is missing from Christianity. It's the reason why when Gandhi, who was so amazed at the Bible and perhaps was enthralled with the idea of Christianity when he was spending time in South Africa, said after his disappointment of spending time with one of the denominational churches there, he said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Do you look different from the world? Would people be astounded when they see the way that you treat those that mistreat you? Do you just not repay evil or do you actively do good to those? Does your prayer life in any way include your enemies? And I'm not just saying just, oh, pray for repentance. Do you pray for Al-Qaeda to be blessed, to have food, to have water, to have comfort, that their children can, can, can be comforted in, in difficult times? That's what Jesus is saying here. And yes, we pray for the greatest good, which is repentance, of course. I don't think anybody has to have their arm twisted for that one. That's just prudence. But here's the great part about Jesus' love. It's absurd. And it's meant to make not only you scratch your head, but the world to scratch its head. One of the times that this was most vivid was on October 2nd of 2006. And at that time, a 32-year-old man who was a milk truck driver in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, had a bit of a, a crisis in his life. And he went to an Amish school, a one-house school, and there Charlie Roberts walked in with his weapons and killed five young girls. Shot five others. Little girls from age 6 to 13. Shot them execution style in that schoolroom. Many of the families were outside of the schoolroom because they had come there trying to help their children, but because it had been barricaded in, they weren't able to get in, plus the threats of the gunmen caused them to, to wonder. And even as the girls were being shot, and five who did not die, the screams were deafening to the families as they were surrounding Charlie Roberts as he executed these children. One family lost two sisters, two of their daughters, in that killing. As the news report flashed, Terry Roberts, the mother of Charlie Roberts, the executioner, called her husband and he confirmed that it was their son who had done this. She immediately said to her husband, I think we're going to have to move. The schoolhouse was so riddled with bullets and blood had splattered over every single inch of that schoolroom that they decided to tear down the schoolhouse and build a new one because it was impossible to, to, to get a new start there. It, it was in that same spirit of, of thinking, well, they had to get rid of the schoolhouse, that Terry said to her husband, maybe we just need to move. How are we ever going to be able to live in this community again? 
with what has gone on with our own child. That night, the family who had the two girls murdered by the son, they came and comforted Terry Roberts and Charlie Roberts, the father of Charles Roberts IV. They were there to hold them. There's a scene that I remember from the television of, of one of the, uh, the Amish families holding the father for over an hour as he sobbed uncontrollably at what it was that his son had done. And those that had such grief of their own little daughters dying were the ones that, that came to the aid of this family. They told her not to move. We want you here in this community and we forgive your son. We forgive you. And they stayed in that community. As a matter of fact, it was that community that over 30 of, of, the, uh, of the Amish attended the funeral of Charlie Roberts. They began a fund to help the family. Uh, Charlie Roberts was married with, with, with kids. It was the Amish who created a, a benevolence fund that was able to then support that family after the death of the breadwinner of that family. And all the world came to Lancaster County. They all were hoping for interviews, by the way, with the Amish, but they don't believe in interviews because they thought it would make them proud. Uh, but, but they all came and they were astounded. And the world took notice. Why? Because in a communal sense, there were a group of people that decided that they would take Jesus at his word. And it rang throughout all of the media. And it rang throughout every corner of every nation to be able to see real love for enemies displayed. Not just sentiment, but action, real action. Sacrifice of funds, sacrifice of time, rearranging of life for the sake of enemies. And, and so it went down. And so we have the opportunity. We have the opportunity not to be shaped by society. Romans tells us right before that passage on love your enemies, do good to them. It warns us in the beginning of that same chapter 12, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what Jesus wants from all of us is transformed, radical, revolutionary, new set of values that we live out. Values that don't seem prudent, values that seem absurd, values that are lavish in their generosity, values that are upside down. From much of what even a world that claims to be Christian would even view. But we are called, on no uncertain terms, to be like Jesus. Love is Christian. Love is what Jesus does. Love is what we do as well. Simple challenge from this. Think of the best thing that you could do for the worst person in your life. Make a mental note of it. Write it down. The best thing that you could do for the worst person and do it. Don't think about it. Don't ponder it. But do it. Make a difference. Make a statement. 
Show Christ to a world that needs to see Jesus. Preach a sermon with the word, with the, the way that you live your life. Let's let Hampton Roads know what Jesus looks like. Let's make them feel Jesus, be touched by Jesus, be affected by the body of Christ. Let's close in a prayer. God in heaven, as we're before you right now, I do pray that we can be surrendered, really surrendered to the hard part of the gospel. The part that rails against everything inside of us. And we won't have to be giving some sort of an explanation at the judgment seat about why we thought we were wiser in this area. But that we really would love our enemies. As Jesus says, not resist an evil person. Do good to those who persecute us. To, to love, to give, to lend, to make a difference. God, I pray even now for those that we might deem enemies in a larger communal sense. Even as we're engaged in war across the planet, Lord, for, for those that are the opposition, whether it be in the, the hills of Afghanistan or, or hunkered down in the, the, the urban corners of, of Saudi Arabia or even in, in, um, in Iraq right now, God, Lord, that you would bless them. Lord, I know that they are hurting. There is famine in so many of these areas. There are difficult times. Even I think about Sudan and those that have killed Christians in their churches throughout Nigeria, where just atrocities are going on. I beg you, God, please, that you would bring blessing upon those that are even perpetrating these heinous acts. God, that, that we really can see their children flourish, that we can see their marriages strong, that we can see food come to them that they weren't expecting. But God, and of course we do pray for repentance, for amazing repentance. But I know, God, that sometimes your Holy Spirit works through the absurd, selfless, active love of Christians. That as Paul shared the gospel, he was eager to share not only the gospel, but his life as well. And I pray, God, that we could be Christians that share the gospel in our lives as well. That share the love of Jesus, not just in theory, but in practice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.